Alright, hello and welcome to another edition of New York Update. I'm Jake Jacobs, a New York City school teacher that has been uh, an advocate against uh, what they call education reform. That includes high-stakes testing, charter schools, common core, privatization. And I do this weekly podcast to really keep track of uh, all the changes going on. And I do speak to elected officials. I try to speak to media, mainstream media, uh, but the education media is pretty anemic, unfortunately. It's not, a, it's not a hot topic. And if you're not talking to teachers or really involved parents or just total wonky nerds, then it's a tough subject. It's a tough subject. Um, but it, it is important because it affects every kid in school, every kid in public school. And basically what happened back in 2001 is George W. Bush got together with Ted Kennedy, the Lion of the Senate, and they passed a new rule, a new law called No Child Left Behind, which really upended the the federal accountability guidelines. It actually took control in a lot of ways of every single public school in the nation by the federal government by mandating standardized tests in math and English. And kids in those grades, third to eighth grade, have been mandated ever since 2001 till today, so it's 17 years, to test every single kid annually in math and English language arts. And I started teaching in 2007, so I feel this is a real travesty. I came in just after the law was implemented, maybe about six years, and I saw the damage. Uh, Kids hate the test. They hate school. They hate everything. They didn't love school anyway, but (laughs) whatever the joy there was of attending school was really hurt by the legislation uh, known as No Child Left Behind. Interesting little factoid about No Child Left Behind. You know, I had punishments. You know, there was these new federal guidelines that said any school or school district that didn't make AYP, annual yearly progress, I know here we go with the letters already, alphabet soup, but any school that didn't make annual yearly progress could be sanctioned by the federal government, which means funding taken away. Just the opposite of what a struggling school needs. It should be the other way around. The struggling schools should get the most money so that they can fix the problems and reach every kid. So so that was pretty wrongheaded. But even worse was in 2001, um, it said that uh, schools, all schools, all states, every single state has to has to meet 100% proficiency by a certain year. I think the year was 2012, uh, or it might have been 2014. So it was like way out in the future. And, you know, it's really nice, you know, in a dream world to think that uh, a school is going to, you know, have every single kid meet 100% of the kids meet proficiency. That's an awesome ideal. The only problem is it's completely unrealistic because... So many kids come to school unprepared. You know, by the time they're 
entering kindergarten, their language delayed, some kids are disabled, some kids are severely retarded, some kids have dyslexia, some kids have emotional problems, some kids have unstable homes, they, they move around a lot. So, you know, and this sounds like a bunch of excuses, but this is reality. Uh, you know, I teach in a school where we have our share of high-needs kids, and not only do they have their issues, right, like it could be like raging ADD or ADHD. Some of the kids are diagnosed, some aren't. But, you know, these kids are, you know, unable to sit. They're un- unable to sustain, uh, you know, what they call desk work for 45 minutes out of go. You know, we're asking, I mean, it's, it's really crazy when you think about it. When you ask a sixth grader who's full of energy, right, to sit, to come in first period, sit down for 45 minutes, then second period, sit down for 45 minutes, third period, fourth period, all the way through eighth period, 45 minutes, we're asking the kids to just sit there all day long, sit at a table and a desk, and, you know, shuffle around papers and do work and pencils and everything. So it's everything teachers can do to get these kids up and moving and, you know, raise your hand, like move across the room, stand under a sign, clap your hands. It's it's really necessary because, you know, kids are built to move around and kids are built to be crazy. And, you know, it's it's really a better way to learn. You know, kids that are just sitting there at a desk all day, all day long. You get bad posture. You get bad habits. You start schlumping forward. You get, you know, you fall asleep. What are we doing to our kids? I mean, we, you know, recess has been on the decline ever since the advent of No Child Left Behind, um, and they've also reduced, you know, the so-called fun classes like art and music and sports and gym and everything. Those of all seventeen percent, they they said that the other. Uh, subjects besides math and English have have declined since the testing came in. So it's it's just been an awful odyssey, you know. And I started teaching right in the middle of it, and so some of these rules and regulations, you know, they really tick me off. And that's why I'm here. That's why I'm in front of this microphone, and that's why I am a member of you know lots of different organizations. I'm uh, part of a union caucus. Social Justice Caucus. I'm part of a uh, parent group called NYSAPE, New York State Allies for Public Education. Uh, the, I know the NYSAPE has a mailing list of 20,000 parents. Uh, you know, those are your opt-out parents. When it comes to taxpayers, taxpayers should really be pissed off about charter schools and the privatization of public schools because we pay a lot of money. Uh, you know, people pay property taxes and income tax and payroll tax. A lot of the money that is supposed to go towards public education does not get there, you know, and charter schools are just one way that they rip off you know, the taxpayer. You, you know, it, it's a, it sounds like a great idea. Oh, we're going to have these separate schools. Uh, we're going to, uh, you know, we're going to do better. We're, we're going to focus re- in on discipline and, you know, a high achievement. All sounds great. It's lovely. But, you know, it's just so stupid to have a system and then build another system to compete with the first system because not only is there duplication and redundancy, right, but you also have perverse incentives, right? So now the charter school sector, they don't just want to look good by doing well, having their students do well on tests or have their graduation rate high. They want to make the public schools look bad. Right? They, they, they do lobbying and they do PR. And, you know, it's basically 
me- media manipulation. You know, they go in and they plant articles. And these guys have these think tanks and these nonprofit organizations. And, you know, if you're pro-charter, you're anti-public school. I mean, you know, why not have one system and why not work out the problems? Why would you ignore the problems in the public schools? 95% are public, are district schools. 5% are charter schools. So why would you start allocating money and allocating resources to such a small segment? The call-in line, it is 845-353-2910. So our guest tonight is supposed to be Gia Lee. Uh, Gia Lee is... Oh, here we go. Hello. Okay, so Gia Lee is a New York City school teacher. If I have it right, you're a special ed teacher, right? Elementary? Yes, that's right. And you're also, and so, longtime teacher, uh, experienced, proven educator. And you're also very active in the union and the MORE caucus, M O R E, movement of rank and file educators. We've had you on the show before um, when you were a candidate for. Lieutenant Governor, actually, and we're having you back now because a colleague or actually a parent that's also in some of the opt-out groups had a question about what's going on, and we wanted to catch up. Let's jump into the APPR law bill that just passed. This detached teacher evaluations from test scores, we were told, but there was some controversy around the bill. The unions wanted it. Certainly the UFT and, and NISA, the New York State Union. But there were some criticisms about the bill. And what side did you fall on? You mean, who do I believe? Well, did, did you think... Truly yeah, did you think that the bill was okay as it was? Didn't go far enough? I know there was kind of like a letter-writing campaign at the last minute to urge leg- legislators to vote no. Right. I think it did not really revoke test-based evaluations at all. Um, if anything, it's kind of, there. I think there was only like one little difference between this APPR bill and the one that supposedly was revoked or changed. And, and that it's, all it does is it basically leaves what the metric is or the, uh, the district is based on some kind of value-added model. It leaves too much room for ambiguity and actually does nothing to really get at the root of why all of this is problematic. And that has to do with the fact that the tests are then used to put, you know, rank and sort schools and determine and label some schools as failing. Because you're going to have that uh, as part of the design of the metric and then giving a rationale for why that school needs to be quote unquote turned around or um, you know even co-located and closed eventually so I find that it really did nothing but morphed into some other thing and it's really problematic so the bill that was voted on and passed the, 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 the new Democratic state Senate Democrat led state Senate very easily was basically the same exact bill that was offered in the last session. And it did pass in the New York State Senate last session, but it was held up in the Assembly because Mm -hmm. they tacked on 100 charter schools, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and that was was a a poison pill for the Assembly. Um, And the union 
got very vindictive um, at the Demo- at, at the um, senators who voted for it in the Senate, um, uh, with, with the uh, with, with, you know with the uh, bad provisions attached to it, but they were trying to shepherd this bill through. They did have overwhelming support in the last session. This time, people are saying that since you have a Democratic majority, why didn't you make the bill, you know, go farther? Because uh, what it does is it actually detaches the state test scores, which used to be called common core tests. Now they're called next generation tests. Um, but it still requires a, a, a student assessment that is mm-hmm. approved by the state education department. So right. it just replaces the common core tests with something else from right. the commissioner's list and there's nothing great on that list, correct? That's correct. And the president of the state union, Andy Pallada, is going around on radio shows saying that it will be up to collective bargaining district by district. And so all, so the local will go into negotiations and say they want something else, but they can't actually get it unless it's approved right. by the state education department. So what they would have to do is they would have to submit it ahead of time, wait however long that would take to get approved, mm-hmm. and then go in and bargain for that, assuming it was on the list, which right. all of the above is not happening. It's just unrealistic. It's completely unrealistic. And if I can just say that, look at how many years we've wasted the amount of time that we spent going along with something that was completely unscientific and actually causing more harm to our school system only to say now we're going to dump this in the lap of districts for what? So now we're, it was almost like an admission that test-based and using a standardized test across the state was not valid and they did away with it after, you know, harping about needing that kind of metric. But then putting it on the district level, only, you know, like you said, only for the assessments that are actually approved on the commissioner's list. The amount of time that this is going to take, we need to cut it out. It's a bunch of nonsense and get right to the root of it. These are all distractions. And the, it's, the real root of the distraction is that it is not addressing what these supposed metrics and value-added systems are doing, which is separating, dividing, and conquering school districts, um, teachers, and trying to look for a way to funnel tax dollars into a system basically that's not going to work for us. They want to increase charters, the charter cap, in addition to that. So we all know that if you look at, like, Los Angeles, they got right to the root of all this nonsense and said, no, we are not going to go along with this anymore. And the whole thing is just a complete waste of our time, money, energy, and Elected officials, we all know, have taken, you know, all kinds of money from proponents of these reforms, from folks who have nothing to do with education, but only for the for-profit enterprise of it. Right. We spoke about the L.A. strike and, you know, the fact that the, the sticking point at the very end was the charter school networks that they wanted to create. You know, the the district and the union was kind of in agreement that 
there should be more funding, that the class sizes should shrink, you know, that they had worked out compromises on all of those points. Do we know how the charter school conflict got settled in the L.A. situation? So what I understand is as part of the agreement um, between, you know, initially it wasn't one of the UCLA uh, demands, contract demands, um, you know, to address the charters. And there were some criticisms of that. However, in where the more caucus is just so folks know, um, the movement of ranking college educators is part of a national kind of grassroots network of social justice caucuses, and Union Power um, of UTLA won their leadership five years ago. So they've all we've always been on the same page about charters, um, and now what's happened is a result of their collective bargaining process throughout the strike. Um, what they got was some type of agreement about having a more democratic process in the charter school the decision-making process. So right now, you see, as soon as that contract was voted through, the UTLA, the leadership has immediately started a campaign against the charters. Right. Charter expansion. Right. So you're saying it's it's not 100% settled, but they did set up a process where they're mm-hmm. going to have some some levers of negotiation on an ongoing basis. And that that's interesting. I mean, at, at least, you know, both sides will, will have leverage. At least ten senators enter the Senate in January who are anti-charter, mm-hmm. replacing mm-hmm. senators that were pro-charter or or friendly to charters. You know, in a body of sixty-two senators, to have ten mm-hmm. anti-charter senators come in and and swing that. So it doesn't seem as though raising the charter cap is going to work in this budget. Of course, we'll see because, right. you know, the governor is pro-charter and the mm-hmm. Republicans are pro-charter and there's still a lot of money out there to uh, maybe entice other Democrats and see what they can mm-hmm. do. So it's something that we really need to keep an eye on. But that election was really bad for charters. You know, and one of the first orders of business was passing this APPR bill. We got asked a question uh, from a friend of ours. And she wanted to know about, uh, she wanted to know your opinion, my opinion, because we're New York City teachers, and especially you, because you're so involved in the union scene. I think her question basically was about the excuse that is used to defend the testing. I mean, we both agree that the underlying problem with the teacher evaluations is the standardized tests themselves, and that this legislation really just picks around the edges a little bit. It's going to basically take every single district and make it a fight. So there's 700 districts around the state, and New York City is such a big district that it's it's literally over 40% of the of the state, right? As in terms of schools, in terms of students, in terms of teachers. So it is such a huge district, and so that's going to be a big fight. But the head of the UFT, the head of the New York City Union, has been saying that we need the testing because it's an objective measure that protects teachers from abusive administrators. And I was wondering if you could give us a little context on that claim and what the reality is. So, yeah, I've heard this. So that is... 
I don't even know what kind of argument to make that, but if we have a problem with abusive administrators who are, you know, you rating or giving bad observations or intimidating observations, which is, you know, definitely a reality, not just here in New York City, but everywhere, Mm -hmm. um, we need to address that issue. We cannot rely on metrics that have been found, you know, by the American Statistical Association to be completely invalid and statistically uh, just not accurate. It's not a valid tool. So you're saying we'll use one, say that using a test score is an objective tool, it is just false. Right. So that, number one, is, you know, we have to throw that out. That's not that's not true. Um, it's normed. It's, you know, that you're guaranteed bottom failing. You're, right, you got the you bell know, curve. normed. Yeah. Right. And so it doesn't get to the root of the issue. Um, and we're, the other part of it is that ever since this entire, you know, test-based system started, we knew we were embarking on a, a very dark time in education, in public education, where the rhetoric of ed reformers is that the schools are failing, right? And who do we hold accountable? It's the bad teachers. Right. And unfortunately, our union leadership, nationally, at, you know, the local levels, they all fell into that trap of thinking that we have to counter this narrative by going along to get along. You know, Randy Weingarten, Lily Eskelson-Garcia, the heads of the big national unions, they all capitulated on this and you know it was Mike Mulgrew who really who really went on a limb and said this was going to be great you know that this is going to um, prevent abusive administrators from picking on teachers and and uh, targeting them but you're absolutely right we you we can't do it and rely on a on a test that is provably invalid and at the same time, it ignores the, the the problem that abusive administrators should not be allowed to continue doing what they're doing. So they're just basically standing down on that problem. Right. And then, you know, so, so now let me ask you, because the end result has not hurt teachers. The end result of using this test has helped teachers. And, you know, that could bring a lot of criticism on the union. You know, the critics that say we're just out for ourselves and we don't care about, you know, the kids or the taxpayer. Um, and so it's it's really difficult for me, you know, because it, it puts me publicly at odds, you know, with my union, which I don't want to do mm-hmm. publicly. But, um, you know, what's the alternative? I mean, we have right. to stand up and say that these kids should not be subjected to these tests because they're completely invalid. And and um, you know and and millions and millions of dollars are being wasted on this system, which we're all going along with and we're all playing dumb and it's com- just completely rigged, because the number of ineffective teachers is, I think it's like, under one percent at this point. Right. Right. Okay, but Jake, remember, like statistically, that might be true. There might be like one percent of teachers who are rated ineffective based on test scores, but at the same time, based on you know, general low test scores at the micro level, at the school-based level, I know, and you know, of teachers who are personally targeted for not having, like, just like a teacher's class do well versus a 
another teacher's classroom in the same building. You know, so administrators get the list of students and how they did on the test. And I've been hearing a lot about this. And uh, let's say it's third grade. One teacher has specific students who didn't do as well on, like, let's say the math test versus another teacher. And then there's internal targeting happening. There's internal tensions happening within schools, be it um, teachers being made to feel that they're not effective teachers in math and that this teacher is the expert one year, um, being told that they're going to be getting a different, you know, uh, position. Right. So, so what you're saying, I think what you're saying is that even even though the tests are supposed to protect teachers from bad administrators, the administrators can still saddle any given teacher with the lowest performing test takers to make them look bad on the tests. You could also change their assignments. So if they're comfortable teaching fifth grade and you make them teach third grade, or you could actually Mm -hmm. make them change subjects uh, in in some cases... Um, so the administrators can still make teachers' lives a living hell. Um, it's happening. Right. And, and they can actually weaponize the tests to make some of their teachers look good and other teachers in the same building look bad. Right. Yeah. It's, so It's really not doing anything to address that. And I would say that that kind of abuse and that kind of targeting is happening um, at a greater level than just saying 1% got ineffectives on tests, you know, so that's just not a valid argument. Right, and you also have teachers themselves, because the testing is a, you know, career, uh, you know, a career influencing uh, metric, supposedly, Mm -hmm. so you might have teachers that are trying to get get a kid out of their class, or you might have Mm -hmm. a teacher... Yeah, I mean, I mean, it goes without saying that, like, you know, te- what teacher wouldn't want to teach the honors class in a school, right? right. It's all the brightest kids. They're all well-behaved. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier, you know. It's interesting. You're going through a lot of content. You're not doing a lot of behavior management. I mean, you know, so, so that was going on anyway. But now it really, you know, it, it puts high stakes on top of all that so right. that teachers, you know, will be at each other's throats trying to, you know, get that spot. And, uh, you know, that goes into, like, uh, kissing up to the principal or mm-hmm. favorites and patrons. It's really just just a non-collegial environment at that point. Right, right. Because no matter how you paint it, it's still a system based on competition. Um, again, like, ranking and sorting. And enough research has been found to say that that kind of culture actually does more harm than good, and that actual learning is a collaborative uh, and social and emotional process, and that when you flip that, it's not, it's no longer a nurturing, safe environment for learning. <clears throat> right. Work to work in. Right. Yeah, I mean, so in answer to uh, our friend Kamala's question, um, I'll, I'll read it verbatim just so I make sure we're doing a mm-hmm. thorough job. Um, she writes, so here's what I'm asking you in your position as teachers who I know care deeply about children and justice. 
Do you think the inclusion of test scores, especially when tied to an assessment chosen because students are known to score well on it, does actually protect teachers from abusive administrators? So we, we've been over that. And number two, mm-hmm. do you think it does, or maybe do you think it doesn't, uh, could, could something else do the same instead? And if so, mm-hmm. what would this other thing look like? A more rigorous way to appeal a bad rating, an outside observer either as a regular part of the initial process or of the appeal or something mm-hmm. else. And so I, I, she's asking, you know, if there are abusive pr- uh, principals or administrators out there, if there's a better mechanism, um, you know, than, than uh, these standardized test scores uh, or, the, or the evaluations tied to test scores, um, I think there are better mechanisms uh, I was I was wondering what you think. Why don't you answer first, and then I'll go. Okay. So uh, a, f- a few years ago, I did go through a leadership program at Bank Street, which is a very progressive institution here in New York City. It's great, yeah. And, yes, I did the leadership for educational change, and I got my administrative degree um, in special education. And the courses that I took there really, really opened my eyes to what it means to have, um, to be leading a school that's geared towards educating the whole child. And when you come at it from that place, that it's not about, um, you know, ranking and sorting students, um, you know, data mining your students to target specific skills, um, it really changes the attitudes of the people who are working with the kids, and it changes the attitude of the administrators. Your priorities shift. And out of Bank Street, there are two founders of Bank Street. Um, can't, their names have lost me. But they wrote a piece, and this was from the 1940s, called How Do You Know a Good Teacher? I highly recommend it. You can Google it. And throughout the process, and this is in the 1940s, towards the end, it describes how ultimately... Using metrics could never, ever fully encompass what it means to be a good teacher and that it really depends on uh, the attitudes um, and the culture and the, the frame in which a school, a school community uh, develops its values. Right. And so I think that's where we have to get to the root of. Right. Um it's not a matter, we're asking the wrong question, right? It's not a matter of like, so how do we know a bad teacher? Um, it's how do you know a good teacher? And we're, how do we foster that in every educator? Because this system is actually putting so much stress on people that there's no space for creativity. There's no space for innovation. Instead, it's compromised relationships between students and educators and educators and administrators. Well, they're they're, they're also the hemorrhaging. The, the the profession is hemorrhaging the oh, enrollment yeah. in, uh, in in teacher programs in New York yeah. State colleges is oh, it's huge is way way down, and uh, you know every time they survey people, they say that uh, you know teachers are uh, are treated poorly, they're not respected, and that they're right. counted and sorted like you know like like little widgets in a machine in, a, in an assembly line. Um, right. So, so maybe your yeah, so your answer, I guess, might be 
to um, offer training to to teachers, right? To better train them to think about the holistic child if they're not already, but to really um, kind of uh, emphasize, you know, the, the fact that no no measurement that you could ever create could actually take into account every consideration that comes up right. in reality. Right, and that the real question should be, how do we create school communities, school districts, um, at the macro and micro level, um, to be the kinds of spaces where there's democratic decision-making um, to best serve the students and the community? So, right. Yeah, the focus is on the wrong thing. It's We all know, like Jake, you know, that the real agenda behind ed reform is to privatize public education, to commodify it, um, and it's the teachers' union and the teachers that actually stand in the way. Right. And so we have to reclaim this false framing and this false rhetoric. And the only way to counter that is to, to, have, to speak our truth about why we went into this profession to begin with, why we believe that great democracies need to have truly democratic public education. I, I guess the emphasis in New York City has shifted since Bloomberg, you know, from Bloomberg to, the, to de Blasio. We are seeing kind of these new practices coming into place, like culturally responsive learning is, is, is coming into place. I know my school is doing a lot around equity and making sure that teachers understand, you know, uh, how kids are kind of like divided up and, and treated unequally in, in lots of ways. One more thing that I wanted to add for uh, Kamala's question is that we now have a system in place in New York City called the open market transfer system. Mm -hmm. And if you have a really bad principal and they're just like riding you, um, because I've been in that situation. I once had an AP that was coming into my room like every single day just looking for something wrong. And then, you know, finally he wrote me up for something that was completely false and you could just tell, you know, that he had been targeting me. So I got on the open market transfer system and I just switched schools. I don't know if that's going to work for everybody, but it definitely helped me and it gives teachers options so that, you know, without any, you don't need any permission from your, from your principal or your administrators. You just go on the open market, get yourself another position. And if you do it in the right time period, the, your principal has to let you go. Right. And so that's something that I think has really improved the system. And, you know, maybe we should talk more about finding the right chemistry between teachers and principals when we know that the tests are really there because of the big corporate money and the big <laughs> oligarchs that are that are behind mm-hmm. it, Bill Gates mm-hmm. and the Koch brothers and the Waltons. Gia, you've always been very supportive of the opt-out movement and the opt-out parents. Have you heard of the new regulation that requires school districts to count students that opt out as ones, in other words, the lowest possible score, as if they took the test and performed poorly? And so that is now on the books, and they just announced the bottom 5% and the bottom 10% of schools, and some of the schools are hopping mad 
Uh, one of them, I think, is uh, that's affected is one of the CPE schools. Yes. And there's a couple others in Long Island. Again, this is a problem with using any kind of metric like this because the powers that be will take it upon themselves to put arbitrary you know, value to these metrics for their own political purposes. Grand level, yeah. they may say one, but if you go to any school who kn- they know their students, the one is meaningless, absolutely meaningless. But the political maneuver and recognizing that is real. And the second thing I want to say is a few years ago, a teacher who was evaluated, Sherry Lederman and her right. husband, they filed a lawsuit because they wanted to show how invalid the use of these test scores were on teacher evaluations. Well, I think then this is a case completely how invalid, statistically invalid it is to do that. And I'm so shocked that that even went through. I attended the hearings uh, for Sherry Letterman's and her husband when they fought this. And, you know, there was actually six points, six legal complaints or six legal points that they were making that were trying to show that APPR was in violation of the law that created it. And one of the points was that the formulas that are used to figure out the rate, the, the final ratings have to be transparent and available. That's the language. And as we know, they're completely invisible. Nobody has any idea how they count English language learners or students with disabilities, they just go into an algorithm and they come out with a number on the other end. And in a sense, they were suing to find out what those formulas were. And the state refused, even under, you know, lawsuit, to reveal them. When When the decision was handed down that the teacher's evaluation was arbitrary and capricious, Mm-hmm. The judge did not go over all six of, of Bruce Lederman's points, point by point. Um, he pretty much dismissed her evaluation, but he did not strike down the evaluation program because he said at the time it was undergoing changes. I remember know, and, that. Yeah, and the, the Common Core panels were meeting, and they were undergoing changes. But, you know, here it is, uh, at least two, maybe three years later, and we are still using invisible formulas, and we still don't know how they work, and they are still arbitrary and capricious, except for one thing's for certain is that there are not a lot of ineffective teachers under the system. That really gets me suspicious, you know, as to, you know, what the form, how the formulas work, and whether this is some kind of backroom agreement where teachers will not be harmed as long as we continue to administer the tests every year. The UFT and the, the, the New York City Union refuses to join the call for uh, you know parents to opt out or at least know their rights. They won't even they won't even backpack a letter home and during testing anymore right. that tells parents what their what their rights are and what precedent has been. And now we're actually seeing schools being punished and again it's a completely invisible criteria the schools right. that the schools that are on the list we have no idea how they ended up there right and then remember cut scores are determined after the students test are scored right the cut scores yeah the cut scores are determined afterwards that's another level of shadiness right 
And if we want to talk about like the 1%, backdoor deals, protecting teachers, we're talking about like in the now. We're not talking about the impact or the possibilities of what happens in the future. And in the meantime, sure, those are big numbers in the grand scheme of things, but when you get to the school level and the district level, there are real interpersonal, internal implications that have, that's doing a lot of damage because of, you know, either district-wide or even in a classroom, there are these different realities where the numbers actually have a lot of stakes and they're impacting decisions. And so, you know, one thing that I'm really concerned about, and, you know, as you know, I'm part of the Black Lives Matter Schools League of Action. The reason why I'm such a supporter is because the impact of these policies that disproportionately impact communities where there's high poverty, uh, black and brown communities, is disproportionately impacting them to a degree that I bet civil rights violation could, in a, you know, a lawsuit could be brought right. at the federal level. Right. There have been uh, civil rights lawsuits brought, not necessarily against the testing regime, but the charter school. This brings up something that a part of the debate that people don't really talk about too much. Throughout the moratorium on APPR, and now that the, you know, the change, this new law is going to get signed and it's going to change to like a local negotiation, it doesn't change the fact that charter schools are still using the common core test scores. And students had all stakes disconnected years ago. You know, the moratorium for teachers was enacted uh, a couple of years ago. But yet we still have to take the, the tests. I mean, why don't we just have to take the tests that we are being evaluated on, right? The alternative tests. We're not being evaluated on the Common Core test anymore, but we but the kids still have to take them. And I think that has to do with the fact that charter schools, which is only 5% of the schools around the state, they do base everything on those Common Core test scores. Their renewals are based on how well they're doing on the test scores. That is the main factor that is looked at in the reauthorization of charter schools. You know, we do have two completely different systems in that respect. It's kind of amazing that something is in moratorium because it's considered invalid, and yet there are hundreds of schools that are using this as, as, as if it is valid. Right. It gets pretty tricky when you're talking about charter schools because they're in a whole different plane. They're still completely buying in, and everybody that supports charter schools and thinks that the New York City charter schools, they're the greatest thing going, they're refusing to look at the criticisms, the statistical association and, you know, the fact that these scores are manipulated and the fact that they're invisible. I mean, it, it almost doesn't even matter to them. I see it's getting late, Gio. I really appreciate you calling in. It's great to talk to you uh, every once in a while Thanks, about this stuff. About this stuff. Um, was there anything else going on? I know you mentioned the Black Lives Matter. I think there's a week of action coming up. Is that in early February? Yes. Yeah, so in New York City, people can go to the blmedu.wordpress uh, website to get more information. blmedu.wordpress. Okay. To get more information about the week of action. I'm on it right now. Yep. I, I'm going to link this. On the New York Update uh, Facebook page. And this is great because I wanted to share this with the teachers in my school. Yes, yes, please do. And also folks who are New York City public school educators, 
parents to know that there is a USP election happening in April. That's right. And and when do we need to look out for the ballots coming in our in our mailbox? March should be the ballot. The New York City NYC Educator newspaper that the USC puts out will have a full page ad in it with the More Caucus article. People should check it out and check out our website, a Facebook page, all of that to find out more. And um, I'm also running for Vice President of Special Education. Okay. I'm a special educator of 18 years. So if you're a special educator, you know what's happening in our schools with the budgets and how it's impacting our ability to serve our students. It is probably one of the biggest chunks of our budget that goes to lawsuits, special education lawsuits, and right. gets funneled into private schools. So yeah. we are in dire need of getting our stuff together in this city, and I hope people get involved. Okay, well, has there also been any updates on the occupational therapists and physical therapists? Um, uh, yes. You know, folks should know that there are they are the only uh, group within the USP that voted down their contract right. for, you know, a myriad of reasons that are absolutely valid, and our union leadership has basically refused to help them, um, refused to represent them, and have even bullied uh, the OTPTs and tried to intimidate them. Right, and so, so they, they're going to be speaking out. So it sounds like the situation is the same where they're still not on parity with the speech therapists, right, and and the other benefits that are received by by other U, UFT members. Yeah, and folks, if you go to any big city, OTs and PTs often have their doctoral degrees, and they make the same, if not more, than uh, teachers. Right. In New York City, they make significantly less and they don't have nearly the same benefits. Um, and also, the amount of time they're expected to put in is very different. Yeah, and, and I know well, the demands on them are crazy yeah. because we it's had crazy. one in my last building that was expected to work for, like, three different schools and mm-hmm. somehow divide her time. Right, and not to mention the fact that they have, they're required to do all this paperwork. Oh, yeah, compliance, yeah. Yeah, for compliance reasons, and they don't get the prep period. Right, they don't get compensated for it. So, uh, for now, we're just trying to bring attention to the fact that they've been left out of an otherwise popular contract. I mean, 80-something percent of people voted for the contract except for the OTPTs, and so that's something else we'll keep our eye on, too. Yeah, please. Gia, well, thanks for the big catch-up. I see it's almost 8 o'clock, so yeah. uh, we'll let really you go. Yeah, talking to you, Jake. Yes, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye-bye. Gia Lee, uh, on the fight against standardized tests, she testified in U.S. Senate hearings in Washington, D.C. with the Senate Education Committee called HELP, the Health, Education, Labor, and some Pensions Committee, And she spoke out as an experienced special ed teacher because she is one of the only teachers in New York City who has the courage to stand up and say she refuses to administer the tests. She won't even give the the tests. And I believe her school, I should have asked her what the update was for this year, but I believe all the teachers in her school joined in uh, at one point to refuse to administer the test. I know there are some schools that have a big parent opt-out, but 
the teachers refusing to administer the test is a horse of a different color. And so that's Gia Lee, you know, and she ran for a couple years ago, she ran against Mike Mulgrew for president of the UFT. And she ended up getting about 20% of the vote. Uh, there's, there's another issue with the UFT elections. I guess we'll have to bring up on another day. She mentioned that there will be ballots sent out by mail in March and that uh, by April they should have the results. There's some, uh, there's some hanky-panky going on where retirees get to vote in these elections. It seems as though some retirees are allowed to vote in the elections and others aren't. <laughs> and so with that, the, the caucus that's in power is called the Unity Caucus, and they've been in power for the last 60 years. It's a way that they are able to maintain power and make sure that no other opposition caucuses ever make any headway. So the more caucus that Gia is in, you know, I'm also a member of, although I don't get to meetings as much, is considered the Social Justice Caucus, and they are anti-testing, anti-charter, they're pro-Black Lives Matter, they take the more progressive stances on all the issues, and they go in and fight during these union assemblies, these delegate assemblies, and they lose every single time. You know, the leadership wants one thing, and there's opposition on the floor, and they want to make sure the opposition loses. They don't want to take any chances of them getting a majority. So they have their designated people following their votes, you know, and I guess it's just a loyalty thing, right? You know, stay loyal to the leadership. I'm not sure exactly how they do it. We want to thank Richard and Rockland World Radio, Hey Ho, for hosting us as usual. And we intend to be back here next Tuesday at 7 p.m., Deep dive into uh, education intrigue and some of the legislation that's up now and some of the regulations that are up. And thanks so much. This is Jake Jacobs, and we will speak to you guys next Tuesday. NYUpdate.org. It's not just radio, it's Rockland World Radio. Rockland World Radio.com.